Amen. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. Till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Then in a nobler, sweeter voice, we'll sing of his redeeming love. Thank you. We sing together to glorify God, but really to teach and exhort and admonish one another about spiritual truth that we believe. What a wonderful form of religion God's given us in the New Testament. To sing together like that, a cappella, without that, those noise boxes around us, and just to hear each other singing about their love of Christ and Christ's love for them and His shed blood. Amen. Wonderful. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, and let's review the things that are there contained for us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that are found in the remainder of this sentence. Heavenly Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Ghost, open to us your precious word, that we might see the redeeming blood, that precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but in these last times manifest for us, who has caused us to believe, and God has raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand and given him glory that our faith and hope might be in God. Our faith and hope is in thee. We're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ Amen. and we're thankful for the words contained here in this sentence that have so much matter in them for our hearts and minds. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter chapter 1 beginning at verse 17. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. One sentence containing so much matter, four scattered strangers in the province of Asia Minor of the Roman Empire, persecuted under manifold tribulations, under heaviness. Here's their encouragement. Here's your encouragement. When you have heaviness lying upon you to remember these kind of things, and it will lift you up so that your faith and hope will be in God. God Almighty raised Jesus from the dead. That's worse than heaviness. Raised Jesus from the dead. That's worse than manifold tribulations and gave him glory. He is the forerunner of you and me. He is the first fruits of them that slept. He is the first begotten from the dead. We are going to follow him. We will be raised from the dead even if we die and we will be given glory in heaven because we will be glorified with him forever. Right. With those thoughts in mind, who cares about a little heaviness and afflictions here in this world? 
Let's quickly look right into verse 18 that we were not redeemed. We were not bought back from God's claims against us with corruptible things like silver and gold. I want to say just very briefly though, and I appreciated the first time I ever heard this, it is so amusing that the entire Arminian missionary effort depends entirely upon silver and gold. They have an institution that they created called deputation, in which missionaries go around from church to church begging silver and gold in order to get names in the book of life. I'm thankful that the Bible says that the redemption of our souls was not by silver and gold. It was by something far more precious than that, and it is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If there is no gold or silver given, then money begging to the money-begging institution of deputation, then men go to hell. These missionaries do not know that the commission was fulfilled, and these missionaries don't care what Jesus said. Because Jesus, that said in Matthew chapter 28, to teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, also said in Matthew chapter 10, don't take any silver and gold. You can't have one and not the other. We reject them both because they were applied only to the apostles. We don't practice the Great Commission because the Great Commission was fulfilled by the men it was charged to who fulfilled it perfectly. They were the only ones that could perform powerful signs and wonders in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they went forth and turned the world upside down. The gospel was preached everywhere. How can you take Matthew 28 and forget Matthew 10? How can you take Mark 16, go and preach the gospel to every creature, and not take Mark 6, which says don't take anything in your script, you shouldn't have any money, the Lord will take care of you. Why don't they practice that? Because they're hypocrites and they don't know the Bible, even though many of them are very sincere. And many of them love the Lord Jesus Christ, but they are ignorant because the Bible isn't taught. I hope you know the passages that I'm referring to. Don't take anything. They show hypocrisy and ignorance by appealing to Mark 16 while rejecting Mark 6. The missionary movement has for years published how many cents it takes to save a soul. A hundred years ago, it would be printed in newspapers that this particular missionary agency could get a soul into heaven for, you say, a dollar twelve. And so they would be asking for your money. They take all their expenses, divide it by all the decisions that were made for Jesus, and it comes up for a buck and twelve. We can get a soul into heaven. You know, the angels are getting tired up there, bending over and writing new names in the book of life for every buck twelve that's put in the offering plate. Well, they're back at, they're back at the old practice because now it's all computerized. And so I found this interesting organization that uh, reaching souls international, they are incredibly efficient. Do you know what we could do with our general fund? These folks in 2013 did it for 61 cents a soul. 61 depreciated cents? 61 cents today ain't what it used to be. I mean, that's just about free. But I read Precious. 61 cents. Right. What if we sent them $61,000? Or what if, what if we sent them some big number? Do you think there's going to be another soul in heaven? Is there going to be another name in the book of life? Yeah. No. Because it was all done before the foundation of the world, as we're going to read in verse 20. 
You know, what's amusing to me is that less than 1% of Arminians believe their own foolish doctrine. The Arminians that you've met that talk like that, believe that, and teach that, none of them practice it. You say, that's cruel to say that. Very few of them. I gave them 1%. That means 99 out of 100 don't, and one does. Arminians are guilty of soul genocide as they enjoy the good life that damns many souls. If they're enjoying the good life in America, they're damning souls to hell if their doctrine is true. They believe in soul genocide. Their churches are far nicer than needed, and they often have gymnasiums costing souls. Do you know how many souls went to hell if you just look at the backboard and the rim on one end of a basketball court when it's only 61 cents to get a soul in heaven? You say you're making fun of false religion. You are a wise listener. It would be better to go naked. I remember the first time I heard this. It would be better to go naked and suffer suffer the shame of nakedness than to let a soul go hell because I went to the store and bought clothes. BJU is the biggest culprit. Many of us went there. They will beg the last nickel out of the pockets of paying students and requiring many prayers for missions in order for you to get a good report card while having an extravagant, expensive Roman Catholic art museum. We believe in labor and money to spread the gospel, but not for eternal life. We believe in labor and money and efforts and prayers to spread the gospel, to find God's elect and to tell them that God has saved them from before the foundation of the world. We've never added a name to the book of life because they are written there before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1.18, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Religious tradition from fathers is the way that most people end up in their particular religion. Religious tradition is a powerful force. Parents, by example and teaching, brainwash their children. When it's the truth, it's brainwashing that is precious. When it's not the truth, it is brainwashing that is damning. Lord, have mercy. Consider that big Buddhists beget little Buddhists almost always with only a few exceptions. Therefore, give great glory to God for your parents if they taught you the truth or for the God of heaven for saving you in spite of your parents. Either way, the glory goes back to Him. He gave you parents to touch the truth or He taught you the truth some other way outside your parents. We hold to religious tradition. We believe in tradition. But it is in the tradition of the apostles. If you look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15, even though religious tradition is being condemned here, it is false religious tradition. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. These traditions were not pagan traditions. They weren't Jewish traditions. They were traditions taught by the apostles. And that was either communicated orally by the apostles or in the epistles of the apostles. By word or our epistle. Look at chapter 3 and verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. 
Jesus and the apostles gave us traditions to follow. It's called apostolic tradition. And whenever we refer to apostolic religion, we mean the religion of the apostles. We are not making a claim like charismatics and Pentecostals do to the signs and wonders that they think they have in their services. We're making claim to the tradition of the apostles. Received by tradition from your fathers. Now we believe that this audience for this epistle are scattered Jews in what is now modern Turkey. So when it says, silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Here are several ways we can take it, then I'll tell you which way we do. We do not charge Moses' law, even though Moses' law involved many givings of gold and silver in the purchase of gifts to bring bullocks and offer lambs and to pay tithes. You paid 23 and a third percent tithes in the nation of Israel. You paid for the priests. You gave them sacrifices. That involved a lot of expense. But we're not going to charge the law of Moses because the law of Moses also pointed out that a Messiah was coming that would pay for all their sins. Everything was pointing forward to something else. Second, though, we do see that the Jews had a fetish fascination with money. It is throughout the Word of God, and I taught you mostly about it in Romans chapter 11, where God said He would make their table a snare unto them. They were traitors in money. Jews have always loved money. The jokes that are made about Jews being bankers and Jews being traitors and Jews being rich and Jews being greedy and Jews being covetous are bywords and proverbs that the Bible prophesied about them. It's true about them. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ, when He saw what was going on in the temple, made Himself a scourge. A scourge is a serious weapon. And went in and drove out the money changers and said, You have turned my house into a den of thieves. Third, we know that the the traditions of the elders, that, that is the rabbis of the Jewish faith after their captivity in Babylon, were contrary to Moses and to Jesus Because Jesus had to come along in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 and teach, but I say unto you, but I say unto you, because he pointed out things like this. They blast trumpets when they're going to give their gifts into the temple. They swear by the gold of the temple, and your oath is binding, but to swear by the temple or the God that's worshipped in the temple meant nothing to them. They invented, they invented a legal loophole called Corbin, in which they could commit their goods to the temple and not honor their father and money, father and mother, by some of their money being spent for their parents. Do you understand? The elders? Listen, some men look at this verse right here and say this had to have been written to Gentiles because it speaks of the tradition of your fathers involving silver and gold. Not when you read the Bible. The Jews have had the biggest problem with silver and gold than any Gentile. And so we understand primarily right here the traditions of the elders that were contrary to Jesus and Moses and that Jesus condemned. And they had a fascination with money. Even the disciples were caught up in it in Luke chapter 21 when Jesus and the disciples were coming into Jerusalem and and the disciples wanted to stop the Lord Jesus Christ who had performed three and a half years of miracles to, to look at the beautiful stones that adorned the temple. They were given to that structure. Remember what it says in Haggai chapter 2 about that temple? All the gold and silver is mine. But I'm going to give glory into this latter house, greater glory into this latter house than Solomon's ever had. The Lord Jesus Christ. And here are the disciples after three and a half years trying to tell Jesus, look at these rich and costly stones. 
he what is what was his answer? I think it was something about there's not going to be two of them left attached to each other because I'm going to pull the whole thing to the ground because they knew not the day of their visitation. Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. I love that but that comes right there in contrast to the silver and gold, which are precious metals of verse 18. Silver and gold are different from other metals. They don't corrupt as fast. They don't oxidize as fast. They're of greater value. They're rarer in the earth. It takes more effort to find them. Do you remember Job chapter 28, where the whole chapter is spent of men going underground and digging through subterranean tunnels and bringing light down there, looking for little veins of silver where they can dig silver out? And the whole, Job 28 just runs on for 28 verses about how much effort men have made and how much capital they have invested to get gold and silver out of the ground But wisdom isn't found there. You know, it's a gift from God. But men will do all kinds of things for those two precious metals. They're called precious metals. They're called precious metals. But verse 20 tells us that we were redeemed with the precious blood of... Verse 19, we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. There's a wonderful word. Peter loved the word precious. Do you think that Peter had a reason to think that the blood of Jesus Christ was precious for him? Amen. Look at chapter 2. Just look at chapter 2. Can you find the word precious in verse 4? 2-4. Is Jesus precious to Peter in 2-4? Is Jesus precious to Peter in 2-6? Is Jesus precious to Peter in 2-7? Jesus was precious to Peter. Paul never used the word this way like Peter did. Peter loved to use this word. and He uses it right here, but with the precious blood of Christ. Peter used precious four times for Jesus, two times for faith, and one time for his precious promises that he's given us. Jesus redeemed us from the claims of God's law by the payment of his own precious blood. The blood of Jesus Christ represents the death of Jesus for the life of a man, the life of a man, long before doctors ever documented it or understood it, the life of a man is in his blood, taught in the book of Leviticus. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Do you know what they used to do to get you better in this country? If we all know the story of George Washington, don't we? What did they do to get him better? They bled him. Do you like this? Do you love this? It taught us that in Leviticus. You say, when was that? 15 to 1800 B.C. Near 4,000 years ago. Let's call the physicians. They're going to reach into their little slimy bag and they're going to pull out blood suckers and lay them all over me and let them suck the blood out of me. They're going to cut my vein or artery and let me bleed so that I can get better. The life of the flesh is in the blood. When we read something about the precious blood of Christ, now I'm going to say something that's going to Maybe be difficult for some of you to grasp, and I'm only going to spend a minute on it or two. When we talk about the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we do not mean that the fluid that flowed in his veins by itself redeems us from our sins. It is simply life going out of a man when he sheds his blood. Just like the Bible says, 
that we are saved by his cross in about ten places. Do you think that piece of wood has anything to do with our salvation other than it was on that piece of wood he was poked, pierced, cut, slashed, hung, broken, pulled apart, and he bled out his life. Right. He bled out his life. It's his death. And I am sorry for ministers of the gospel who have ever stood in pulpits and preached that it wasn't the blood by itself that redeems. It was the life that is evident that was lost by the blood coming out of his body that is rede- that redeems us. It was death. The wages of sin is death. Not the wages of sin is blood. Let me tell you how bad it can get. In Chicago, in late 2003, 5,000 evangelical ministers got into a coliseum and had a preview of the Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson. And Mel Gibson got up afterwards and said this, The power of redemption that was in the blood of Christ, you could have pricked him with a pin and one drop was sufficient to save souls. Well, that's what you get when you let a Roman Catholic discuss theology. Is that ridiculous? You say, why are you yelling at I'm not yelling at you. For those of you that can think back to 2004, I was just as worked up back then as I am now. But when I'm in a passage like this and it says the precious blood of Christ, I want us to understand exactly what it means. Jesus' blood ran out of him. They had taken little lambs, cut their throats, bled them out into a basin, and every family would stand at the doorway of that house. And that father would take a branch of hyssop and take that blood and spread it on the posts and over the lintel at the top until he had covered that doorway. Because when they were in Egypt, the last, the last night they were in Egypt, when that angel of the Lord went through the land and he came to that doorway, he wasn't going to go through. The, he didn't have to open the door. He wasn't going to go through that door because when he sees the blood, he will. Is it, do you like those words? Yeah. Everybody here like those words? Amen. We're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and God is going to see his blood over us by covenant design because we were chosen, we were elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And he's going to pass over us. Why is it called the Passover? Because the death angel of God went through the land of Egypt and if he saw the blood, even though it was the blood of a lamb, it was blood, it was blood, it was blood. How'd they get all the blood of the lamb up there on the doorway? Because the lamb was dead. Right. How'd the blood of Jesus Christ get into heaven? By the eternal spirit? Because he gave up his life. He was a substitute for us and died in our place. It involved a cross. It involved blood. It's called blood. It's called cross. But it's his death. Should we still sing there's power in the blood? Absolutely. Should we still sing songs that are about the cross? Why not? What are they referring to? His death. His death. I love the, the, the combination of words Passover. Is that just the greatest celebration of the Old Testament could possibly have? When the death angel sees the blood, he will pass over you. And so that night they sat in their houses all dressed. They did not wait for their bread to rise. It was unleavened bread. They ate with their shoes girded. They just sat there, tension in their legs. Tension, tension, because that death angel did not find any blood. 
when he visited the houses of Egypt and he went straight through those doorways and he found cribs and he found beds and he killed the firstborn in every family until a cry arose up out of Egypt that would put the hairs on the back of your neck standing straight up and they knew that it was time and and they stood up and they were delivered. Do you know what the Bible word is? They were redeemed out of Egypt. And do you know what the ransom price was? The Egyptians. He took all their firstborn. He took all their firstborn because they had messed with His people. He took all their money. He ravaged their land until it was ruined. And they left and went through the Red Sea on dry ground and then He drowned their army. Do you know what our God has done for us? He did that to His firstborn and took His firstborn's blood and put it over us. And when we stand before God, He will pass over us. Do you love your God and His plan of salvation? Don't separate the blood of Jesus or His cross from His death. For His death is the key, but His blood is evidence of His death because the life of the flesh is in the blood. Since our redemption, our adoption, is beyond these corruptible natural things, what ROI do you give God? You say, what does ROI stand for? Return on investment. He has invested His Son by crucifying His Son for us. What ROI is He getting from you? When I was in banking, and it's worthless to talk about it, but when I was there, ROI, ROA, return on assets, return on equity, return on investment was all so important. That little tiny number, all these financial statements coming together at the end of the month for 10 days, people working overtime, working past midnight to gather it all together to get one little percent. What return are we giving our shareholders? They're the ones that invested to give us a company. What kind of a return are we giving them? God has invested in us. He's made us His children. He's adopted us. And it was by the precious blood of His only begotten Son. What return are we going to give Him? Listen, if God were to, if the Lord Jesus Christ were to appear right now, He's in here right now. He's, He's in here with the angels. And if He was to turn to one of His scribes and say, I want you to read out the names and give the, the ROI for each member of this church. Where's your ROI going to be? Let's have the highest ROI of any church in the world for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Did you hear what I said? The average ROI. Do you know what that means? We've got to pull up our own and then help everyone else pull up theirs. Yeah. Do you know how easy it is to do that if we really wanted to do it by that which every joint and every part supplies? Right. Some of the things I saw taking place at break time this very day have blessed my heart so much of some of the conversations I saw taking place We're so close. Let's embrace it and have the highest return on investment for the Lord Jesus Christ's blood. We'll never mention our name as a church. We'll never mention the name of the pastor. None of that matters. Go on our website and try to find out who we are. Go on our website and try to find out about the pastor. None of that matters. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that matters. It's His blood. And God shed this blood of His Son for us. It says, with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. This is an inspired simile because of the word as. As means it's a metaphorical comparison being made between Jesus and a lamb. 
We, it doesn't serve us very well because we weren't and aren't shepherds nor Jews. But try with me anyway. Not being shepherds, you may not fully appreciate lambs, how weak they are. And I don't mean the big lambs, I mean little lambs. Little lambs, how weak they are, how innocent they are, how fearful they are. Those little creatures, we haven't, we haven't seen them born. We haven't protected them when they were young, when a wolf could have caught them and taken them and snatched them away from a flock so easily. We haven't seen it. But we should think about lambs. Not being Jews, we do not automatically think of a lamb being offered every morning and a lamb being offered every evening, every day, for years and then decades and then centuries. We don't think of that lamb being killed for every family at Passover to remind them of coming out of the land of Egypt. But Jesus is the Lamb of God because He took away our sins as the innocent substitute who did not raise his voice. He didn't revile. He didn't threaten those that were putting him to death. He died like a lamb to the slaughter. And so it's the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. This inspired simile about blemishes and spots is foreign to our experience. But try anyway. Lame lambs. Blind lambs. Spotted lambs. Think about their wool. And other defects destroyed their value. The Jews continually called from their flocks the kind of lamb that represents our Jesus. Every shepherd would know the most valuable lamb in his flock to be called for the next sacrifice. God looked through the entire universe of angels, creatures, seraphim, cherubim, men, and He could not find one, so He laid help upon one that is mighty. Are you with me? He called the entire flock of the universe and there was none found. So he raised up his only begotten son who was without blemish and without spot. How many sins in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ? How many faults? How many failures? How many weaknesses? What a Savior. Hallelujah. What a Savior we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the most valuable that could possibly be conceived of in the universe. God's only begotten son. Verse 20, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Jesus, the Lamb of God, whose precious blood was spilt to redeem us from the claims of God against us, was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Foreordained means to be ordained beforehand. To be ordained means to be appointed or assigned. The Lord Jesus Christ, by covenant, He did not exist in eternity. Neither did we. But we were chosen in Christ before either of us existed because it was the Word of God that was going to take on human flesh in the fullness of time and become the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would be born later in the 20th century. And we would we were chosen in Christ. And Christ was assigned to us before the world began. Before the foundation of the world. Do you understand the implications of that? Why this universe exists? This universe exists and Jesus' gospel exists not as a remedial correction of what took place in Eden, but the whole thing is a grand display of God's sovereign might for Him to show His power and wrath upon the enemies of Him and to show His grace and His mercy upon the chosen vessels of honor. The whole universe. In order for Jesus Christ to have been foreordained before the foundation of the world, so was the fall. And we are not fatalists. We just know that our God does things like that and the whole universe revolves around the fact that He was going to display His greatness. 
To ordain is to appoint, decree, destine, or order something. To appoint it or to assign it, to order it or to command it. Or to bid a person to do something or that a thing be done. Jesus Christ was assigned by covenant. And so he said in Hebrews chapter 10, I am come to do thy will, O God. Jesus said, I am come to do thy will, O God. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Before the world began, before our first two parents did their terrible deed, our ultimate parent, our Father which is in heaven, had already purposed and predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself by assigning the Lord Jesus Christ to come and live a perfect life for us and die a substitutionary penal death for us. And we received the benefits of both. Our sins were put on Him. He died for them. His righteousness was put upon us. We shall live forever. And the promise of eternal life was made before the world began to all the beneficiaries of the everlasting covenant. Covenant salvation. We believe in it. Covenant salvation, in our version of it, is God making a covenant in the Godhead before the world began of what He was going to do to redeem men and bypass angels. And one great part of it is to display to the angels how great His love is shown toward the church. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. These things were done that now that the principalities and powers in heavenly places might know the manifold wisdom of God by the church. What God does toward the church is for the principalities and powers in heavenly places. God was infinitely and independently happy in Himself without us or angels. He created both for for the display of the perfections of His infinite nature. It reduces us to pawns on a chessboard for the glory of God. Is there anyone here that doesn't like that role? I love that role. Glorify thyself through me. Are you all with me to say, use me and abuse me for your honor and glory. If, If my soul were sent to hell, thy righteous law approves it well. I've already implicated myself so many times and shown that I'd have been worse than Adam if I'd have been in the Garden of Eden. But it's all for the glory of God. What a wonderful view. That's a worldview, isn't it? That's a worldview. Everything is for the glory of God. Right. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. What's your favorite word in verse 20? Sayer, I think yours is foreordained. He wrote me last night saying he wanted me to hurry up and get to verse 20. I appreciated it. I think my favorite word is verily, Sayer. Verily. Who verily? Verily. What does verily mean? In truth or verity. As a matter of truth or fact. Indeed. Fact or reality. Really. Truly. Who truly. Who in truth foreordained. The Lord Jesus Christ is foreordained before the foundation of the world. Verily. There are certain things in the universe that are absolute. The identity of God's Son, Jesus, and the fabulous events surrounding Him on earth and the glory that followed. Those are events of absolute certainty. They are events of verity who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. That Jesus Christ was assigned to come into this world to be born and laid in a manger 
and to live a, the life of a poor man and to be persecuted, tormented, tortured, and then give his life on the cross and live a perfect life in spite of all the temptations of his life. He was tempted in all points like as his enemy, Jonathan Crosby, but he came and died for me and was chosen to it and assigned to it before the world began. That is an absolute truth on which you can rest your life and how you can face the curtain of death as it comes close to you and snuffs out the last breath and you go into the presence of God because who verily, what is that word in that verse for? Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. There are certain things in the universe that are absolute and one is God's everlasting covenant. You may doubt whether Christopher Columbus discovered America because I'd like someone to prove it. You can doubt gravity because Jesus broke it. You can doubt whether Americans visited the moon because they have a, they have a set in Nevada that looks just like the moon. How do you know that Hollywood didn't stage all that? Don't, don't go too far. The point is, there are certain things. What's the word verily? I just love that word. I just love that word right there. Who verily. Everybody wants to deny that God did things before the foundation of the world. That He's just going through time seeing what we're going to do so that He can react to us. But it says, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. So, Do you know how much stuff floating around is truth today? Do you want a truth that you can bank on? Do you want a truth that you're going to need when you come close to death? who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. I have a man assigned to me. And it's not Michael the archangel, nor is it Gabriel. And I appreciate them both. Do you have a man assigned to you? I have a man assigned to me. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He is my lawyer. He is my high priest. He is my apostle. He's my brother. He's my savior. He's my Lord. He is my judge's son. He is the son of God. And he is seated right at the right hand of God. He never gets far away. He's right there. When I meet God, a man is going to stand up. You say, on what basis do you say he will stand up? Does anyone want to venture a guess? Acts chapter 7. Stephen. Yes looked up into heaven, and all the references in the New Testament say that he is seated by the right hand of the majesty on high. Stephen looked up into heaven and said, I see the Son of Man standing on the right hand of power. Can you meet God that way? I can meet God that way. He is the judge's well-beloved, only-begotten Son who gave his life for me and is not going to let that life be spent in vain, but is going to remind his father, look, it's in the book of life. I died for him. I saw my seed in my travail on the cross of Calvary. You were satisfied. Foreordained before the foundation, the world was manifest in these last times. In the fullness of times, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. Much could be said. Verse 21, who by him do believe in God. If you believe in God, it's because Jesus Christ has revealed him to you. If you believe in God, it's because Jesus Christ has given you the gift of eternal life. Jesus said in John chapter 17 and verse 2, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. If you ever know God, it's because Jesus Christ revealed him to you. Because it says in the first part of verse 21, 
Can you see verse 21? It says, who by him do believe in God. These who are the ones from verse 20 that Jesus Christ was manifest for. They're the you of verse 20. Who by him do believe in God. Do you see that? See, if we believe in God, it's by Jesus doing something for us. Jesus revealed him, his father to us. Otherwise, we wouldn't know him. We, we have a God, don't we? We have a God of... We already have one, the God of this world. But Jesus reveals the God of heaven to us. And what did that God do? Peter's, Peter's just jamming stuff together. Brethren, I, we have spent most of our time in the Pauline epistles. This fisherman, by the inspiration of God, has jammed so much into this chapter. It is a record in my outline production. And I'm telling you, I thought Romans 11 was the most difficult chapter I've ever labored through verse by verse. But 1 Peter 1 is blowing it away, and it's not because of its difficulty. It's because of its density. Density of content. Density. Who by Him do believe in God. And then then Peter jumps to what God did for Jesus that raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's glory. He gave Him glory. He ascended up into heaven. He was crowned with glory and honor. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. This was the reward for Him humbling Himself to the death of the cross and then He was glorified in heaven. That's what the middle part of verse 21 is about. God raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory. He's, he's so glorified now. He's far above. You know all the verses that I love to quote. He is the blessed and only potentate already. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is stupendous in His appearance, even to His beloved friends like John. He is glorious. He is, he's far above all principalities and powers, thrones, might, and dominion in this world and in the world to come. The Bible lifts up the Lord Jesus Christ so much with glory. And here's the purpose, that your faith and your hope might be in God. Because Jesus put His faith and hope in God, and He was raised from the dead and given glory in heaven. And if we have faith and hope in God... It is the evidence that God will do the same thing for us. This has been the theme from the beginning of this chapter, that though they were under heaviness through manifold temptations, if they would, by faith, look to what Christ had already done for them and what God had done for Christ, God would do the same thing for them. That your faith and hope might be in God. Why was Jesus raised from the dead? One reason for it. Why was Jesus given glory? So that they would understand the same thing is going to happen to them, though they were being tormented and persecuted and put to death by pagan Romans and good old Jews. They would be glorified in heaven. And that's where we're going, brethren. We're joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. How much inferior do you think your glory is going to be if you're a joint heir? He is the first begotten of the dead in all things. Jesus Christ is going to have the preeminence. And He is the Son of God. And all things are going to be under His feet, but we're going to be right there with Him. When He's on His white horse, we're going to be on a white horse. When He's in His throne, the Bible says, do you want to sit with me in my throne? That's getting pretty close, isn't it? I thought thrones were chairs for one person. But without Him, without without us, He that filleth all things in all, is not full. We are the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.